Is it natural for all of us to desire greatness? Especially if we're American? Do you want to be great? Do you want your life to count? It would seem strange if you didn't. No, Pastor Phil, I would like my life to be meaningless. All of us want our lives to be useful and valuable for some reason. So what does a great life look like? How do you know when you're living one? The Bible seems to suggest that aside from God or Jesus himself, one of the greatest men in all of the Bible was the man named Abraham. Not perfect by any stretch as we will see most clearly today. But it could be argued that aside from Jesus, or looking in the Old Testament, Abraham might be one of the greatest men in the Bible. So what made his life great? Why is it that when he dies, his name is referenced dozens upon dozens of times in the Old Testament? Why is it that he is the only person in the Old Testament that's called a friend of God? Why is it that Jews... Muslims and Christians all say Abraham is our forefather. Theological discussions all find their source, many of them at least. Your system of understanding the Bible will be determined by how you understand Abraham. If I have not made the case yet, one further point would be the turning point in world history happens when we get to the life of Abraham. In other words, whether you want to be great or whether you want to learn about what a great life looks like, I think you should have great interest this morning in learning about a man named Abraham. Originally, his name, as we'll see, is actually Abram, and later we will find out that his name is turned to Abraham. But when I said that the turning point in world history is when Abraham comes onto the scene... I am not making an overstatement, I think, at all. In fact, the Bible presents itself, if you want to understand the overarching structure of this book we're studying, the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 cover thousands of years of history, even by most conservative estimates. Thousands of years from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11. And then time slows down and we focus on one man's family, Abraham. As one author put it, it's almost like the whole world is waiting for Abraham. That's the structure and flow of almost every single commentator or Bible teacher that Genesis is broken down into two halves. 1 through 11, the world before Abraham, creation, fall, the flood, Noah, his family, his sons, the tower, then the world after Abraham. So you will cover just a short amount of time the rest of this series as we look at the life of Abraham. My hope and prayer is that as we do so, we will not just better understand Abraham, but we will understand the man that made Abraham, the God of Abraham as it speaks so regularly throughout the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who else has that description? I mean, that would be a cool thing. Like, I want the God of Phil Howell. Like, yeah, all right. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the, the founder of the plan of salvation that we see in Scripture. So this is a huge, and have I emphasized it enough, a huge turning point in this book and really the rest of world history. So what I want us to do is not answer all the questions that might be lingering in your minds, but to walk through eight, yes, eight chapters of Scripture, seeing two major themes as we walk through it. And when I'm finished walking through this Scripture, instead of reading all of it from beginning to end, we're just going to hopefully just see the big picture. Because I'm, I'm convinced, on a hunch, could be wrong, that some of you will learn things that you did not know about Abraham today. And one of the greatest men in all the Bible, you'll be like, I didn't even know that story was in there. So we're going to cover, hopefully, all of it this morning, and you will learn the life of Abraham in a brief walkthrough, brief meaning 
so many minutes long. I don't know how many. We'll see how long it takes. But we will be focusing on two important themes as we see this story. If you want to jot them down, they're not necessarily my main points. They're just the main hooks to hang these stories on. They are not just random stories thrown together. When you see these themes, you'll understand, oh, they make sense. Why the author, Moses, as we believe, put chapters 12, 13, and following together the way he did. So here they are. The two themes that we're going to see is genealogy and geography. Look at that. They even alliterate. That was not my clever thought. That was from Stephen Dempster and several other scholars that make the point that the seed promise that we found in Genesis chapter 3, go back to the Christmas morning message if you weren't here, or remind yourself on Christmas morning, we looked at the seed of the woman. So the seed promise is followed throughout these stories. So genealogy, that's theme number one. Theme number two is geography, which should remind us of Genesis 1 and 2, the land of Eden, the promised land. Here, first and foremost, in the scriptures, do we see the land of promise being given to Abraham. And that geography, which is really significant, is going to be a big part of the rest of Genesis, the rest of these stories that we'll walk through today, the rest of the Old Testament, and then really the rest of the plan of salvation, as we'll see. So, genealogy, geography. I hope you're already opened in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 on page 8 in these black Bibles in front of you. We ended last week in the story of the tower at verse 30 of chapter 11, seeing that a man named Abram was born, and he had a wife, and she was barren. She had no children. An important point before we dive into our story, because we see Chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses here because they are crucially, foundationally important. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. I want to just pause real quick and point out this is in the imperative, this next phrase. So I'm going to read it this way. So he just says, I want to make your name great, and then he commands him, so be a blessing, and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you, I will dishonor those who curse you, and in all the families of the earth, they shall be blessed through you. Now, do you already see in this amazing promise from God to Abram, genealogy and geography, what is he essentially promising? Leave your land Leave your family, and I want you to go to the land I've shown you. That's geography. And then I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through your family, you will bless all the other families of the earth. That's genealogy. And so what we do is we find the rest of the story picks up these two themes. Abram obeys in verse 4. He leaves when he was 75 years old and departed from Haran. It's the only time it mentions Haran, but most of the time, if you look back at chapter 11, verse 31, and as we'll see throughout, Abram's seen to be from the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. And if you know the rest of your Bible, you'll know that that's the Babylonians. So he is known to be from a Babylonian family, descendant, land, at least in terms of its location. And so he leaves from there, which is interesting because we've seen throughout all of these stories that moving east is moving away from God. Well, now he is moving toward the west, moving back toward the land of Canaan. So the opposite of the trajectory of chapters 1 through 11, geographically, is happening as God calls Abram. And so they set out to go to the land of Canaan. That's in verse 5. If you drop your eyes to verse 6, you'll see that there were many Canaanites in the land. And that's a big deal because, remember, this story is being told to a group of people that are about to take this land that they've been promised here in Abraham's story. And there's big, mean, scary Canaanites. And so that's more than likely why these 
little tidbits are added. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Right there is a good summary of genealogy and geography. To your seed, to your offspring, that's genealogy, I am giving this land. And the land he's talking about is the land of Canaan, the Canaanite land. He built an altar there. And then it tells us that he moved from there, and then he built another altar. And this is the first reference since Genesis 4, if you look down in verse 8, that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, that might just seem like, okay, he had a little quiet time with God. Cool. Fun fact. It's not just a cool little fun fact. It is telling you that his genealogical line is matching up with Genesis 4's genealogical line. So turn back to Genesis 4, and notice what happens with the family of Seth. Genesis 4, verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This reference of calling upon the name of the Lord is the most common reference to prayer in the Old Testament, but it is not everywhere. So it is important when it shows up, and it shows up there in Genesis 4, and then here again in Genesis 12, to help you see that Abram is in the genealogical line of Seth, those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now we drop down to the next story. And if you never heard this story before, I want you to just imagine you didn't, okay? And some of you, maybe you haven't. God just promised a man I am going to bless you and give you land, and it's going to be wonderful, and through you, wow, good, good start. He's got to be excited. His wife can't have children, but God just said, I'm going to have children. The very next story, what happens? Now there was famine in the land. This land isn't looking so good. Are you starting to see? I want you to start to see that right from the beginning of this story, People of God that have great lives are blessed of God, do not necessarily have easy lives. Health, wealth, prosperity teaching is garbage, awful. Here's the most blessed great man, and right away, famine comes onto the land. What, what happened to this great land you promised me, God? So what does Abram do? Now, some people think he just did what he had to do because look how severe the famine is in verse 10. He went down to Egypt. Many commentators, though, suggest he is lacking faith here and not trusting in God to provide. And if he is not seen to be mistaken here, he is certainly seen to be mistaken in the next part of the story. When he enters Egypt in verse 11, he knows that Sarai, his wife, is a beautiful woman. Do you see that in verse 11? So he says in verse 12 that the Egyptians, when they see her, will say, wow, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So he wants her to say, you're my sister, in verse 13, so that it will go well with me. Well, that's not so cool. He wants his life to be spared, and so he's putting her out. And so we see that this is exactly what happens. He knew that he was way out of his league, and he had a drop-dead hot wife, however you want to describe it, because, look, that's exactly what happens in verse 14. All the Egyptians start talking, and man, is Sarai very beautiful. And so word starts to spread to Pharaoh, and quickly she is taken. Do you see that language of verse 15? The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, Abram was dealt with very kindly. He got sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female servants, and camels. He just gave up his wife and got all kinds of riches. Is that what you were expecting? That's not what I was expecting. And look at verse 17. But the Lord, but the Lord stepped in because Abram has messed it up so badly here. The Lord stepped in and afflicted Pharaoh with his house with great plagues. Now, are any of you starting to think, now this sounds familiar. Where in the world have I heard about a man, a man of God, in Egypt, and that Pharaoh has people enslaved, God's people, and that then plagues come on? 
This is all foreshadowing what you are about to read in Exodus if you keep reading through the rest of the Bible. These stories are repetitive to show God's ways and the way that he continues again and again to deliver his people. So God brings great plagues. Verse 18, Pharaoh called Abram and said, what have you done to me? Remember that phrase, you will see it again later in this story. And then he's wondering, why in the world did you tell me that she was your sister? She's not. One pe- some, some commentators suspect that maybe Sarai is there and she is not being afflicted, infected by the boils or the plagues. And so like, there she is, she's, she's fine. But everybody else in Egypt is getting so distraught by these plagues. And so naturally he must conclude, this must be because of Sarai. And so they find out that Sarai is married to Abram, and so they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He got to keep it. He got to keep all the riches. Chapter 13, look at what verse 2 says. Now Abram was very rich. Yeah, I guess so. He just got a nice big loot from Pharaoh. He had all kinds of livestock, silver, and gold. And so then he journeyed back to the place he started where we talked about that altar previously. Now drop down to verse 5. Notice that he brought Lot with him. And Lot also had flocks and herds and tents. And then notice, genealogy, geography, genealogy, geography. Here we see that the land previously had a famine. So there was danger in the land because of famine. Now there's danger in the land because it could not support these two very wealthy men. And there's quarreling amongst them. So again, the focus here in the story is the land. Drop down to verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between us. He's trying to settle things. And this is again where we could see it two different ways. Abram then makes a suggestion, okay, I let you decide. I'm not going to be in charge anymore to decide. I'm just going to trust God here, and I've learned my lesson. And so he says, Lot, you choose whatever land you want. Whereas other people look at it more negatively, and they say, no, this is a terrible thing again. He is giving up the land that God promised. He was told by God, this is the land. What are you doing telling Lot he can have any land he wants? No, this is your land, Abram. So either way you take it, we do need to realize that geographical land is the focus of this story. And what we see Lot do is he decides to take the land that looks the most pleasing to his eye. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Garden of the Lord. That's why I said this is geographical language should hearken back to the Garden of Eden. The promised land, the land that they thought would be blessed would be land like that garden. Land like that of Egypt. And so Lot likes that land. And that land was the one that's really close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says a little note there in the end of verse 10 that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't even know what that's about yet if we're reading the story for the first time, but we'll get there. So Lot journeyed east. Uh Uh-oh. Journeying east does what? Moves further away from God's blessing and his presence. And so this is a bad choice. We're supposed to be comparing and contrasting Lot and Abram throughout these stories and realize that Lot lived by sight and Abram throughout Even though he has many missteps, he lives by faith. And we'll get to that later. So we see Lot settles, Abram settles. The Lord then says to Abram, look at verse 14 and 15. Abram's supposed to look and see the place that he's living and look every different direction. And then he says, all this land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. There's genealogy and geography. All the land for all your offspring. How much offspring am I going to get, Lord? As much as the dust on the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, so will your offspring be. That, my friends, is unbelievably awesome. That many descendants? I'm a barren man with no children. My wife is barren. She can't have children. And you're telling me I'm going to have as many children as the dust on the ground. As we turn over to chapter 14, we notice that the land is filled with war now. So all of these different kings and armies join forces, and then they rebel in verse 4. So you have this war and rebellion going on, and and one of the things that happens as a result of this war in chapter 14 in this story is that all of the possessions of the land by Sodom and Gomorrah were taken, including, look down at verse 12, Lot 
the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions went their way. So Lot, the son of Abram's brother, so Lot is the nephew of Abram, he is taken away as plunder and as another property in a casualty of an early war. In verse 13, it tells that Abram finds out about this, and then he gets 318 men in verse 14, and they take their forces by night, and they defeat them and pursue them and bring back all the possessions and bring Lot back in verses 15 and 16. So now Abram is seen as this war hero. He's saved and rescued his nephew. He's brought his possessions back. And so one thing that you might think if you're following the themes of genealogy is that potentially because Abram doesn't have any kids yet, well, this is his next in line. And now that even next in line family member is in danger. Every which way you want to work it, it's not working out so well. The genealogical promise is in danger in every different direction. What we find after this story, though, in verses 17 and 18, is that when Abram returns back from this victory of war, he is blessed by a very strange figure named Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. This is important. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. It's the city of peace. So you have a king in Jerusalem, and he is called a king and a priest in verse 18. Do you see that? A priest of the Most High God. The only time this ever appears in the Old Testament. And tuck that away, that's going to become significant as we see the rest of the story of Scripture when we think through Jesus. Anyway, what we find here is that this Melchizedek character, he blesses Abram in verse 19 and 20, and he blesses God, and Abram gives him a tenth of everything in verse 20, and then we move on to chapter 15. In chapter 15, we are seen with genealogy and geography. After all of these things happened, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is what the scripture reading was just read. And we know that Abram is childless and he is distraught about this. And so he is trying to find every human way to fulfill this promise from God. Notice he's with his own efforts saying, hey, look, Eleazar, he could be the one who takes on my heir. And this man will not be your heir, the Lord says in verse 4. It will be your very own son. So he reiterates the promise of genealogy. And then look at what he says in verse 5. Remember that dust of all the earth promise? Hey, go look out at all the dust of all the earth. Look what he says in verse 5. Then he brought him outside and looked toward the heavens and said, number the stars if you're even able to number them. So shall your offspring be. This is not just a promise of a son. This is a stupendous promise. This is amazing. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. If you have not, if you don't know, if you mark your Bibles up, you are to mark down verse 6. You're supposed to put a big box around it because Pastor Phil just said so, and you're supposed to know that this is one of the most important verses in the story of Abraham and really the whole Bible. Our New Testament scripture reading was quoting this verse two different times, and Paul big, picks up on it as this is key if you want to understand what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to believe in the Lord, to hear his word, trust him. And that, my friends, is a righteous, great life. More on that later, but let's move on in the story and realize that it is the Lord who brought Abram out of the land of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So there's geography, and then we see again that there is a covenant being made that is going to solidify this because Abram says, how am I going to know that I will possess this geographical land? And so God says, bring me some different animals. And so God, uh, Abram got the animals, brought them, and then look at verse 10, it says he cut them in half. And immediately, if we know anything about ancient history, we know that he's doing a covenant ceremony. And that's made plain when you see verse 17 and 18. The Lord made a covenant with Abram through this little ceremony, and so they took these animals and they cut them in half, and you walk through these cut animals, and the idea is that if you break the covenant, then your blood, the blood of these animals, is a symbolic representation of the blood that will be spilled when you are killed for breaking your end of the deal. But here's the interesting thing. Look at verse 12. The sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram, and then he sees a vision where the Lord 
is telling him, you're going to know for certain that this is your land. He's given a promise that 400 years they will be slaves in this land. But then, or that the land promise will be delayed because of a 400-year slavery, and then they will have great possessions when they come out of that slavery. But notice that when the sun gone down in verse 17, it was dark and a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch passed through the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And then he says, to your offspring, I give this land. There's that phrase again, genealogy and geography. To your seed, I give the land. This covenant is made where Abram is sleep. So God passes through the animals, but Abram doesn't. And that is really, really important as we'll see. As we move on to chapter 16, we notice the efforts yet again of Abram and Sarai to try and fulfill this covenant with their own human power. And guess what? It doesn't work out so well. They see that they have no children. God keeps giving them these wonderful promises. They're believing them, but they are faltering in their faith day after day. As time goes on, the clock is ticking. Biologically, they're getting older. So they present Haggai, Hagar, a Egyptian servant, probably somebody that they gathered when they were down in Egypt. And you see in verse 2 that Sarai has the idea, go into my husband. And husband, you go into this servant. And so he goes along with this. And he went into Hagar, verse 7 says, and she conceived. And they think, okay, we'll have a child through this line, through this means of having a child. And it, it's not at all what the Lord has in mind. So the rest of the story continues to show that, no, it is not through Hagar, your servant. He's still going to bless that child, Ishmael, but that is not the plan. Drop down to verse 16 of chapter 16, and you'll see Abram was 86 years old when Hagar was born to Ishmael. So he is getting pretty old, but time skips forward a whole decade, and now Abram is 99 years old in verse 1 of chapter 17. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you may multiply greatly. This is when Abram's name gets changed to Abraham. You see that he is not going to just be the father of many. He is going to be the father of many nations. And so that's what his name now means, Abraham. And that's what we see in verse 5. And then in verse 6, notice the phrase, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, because that's the promise or the command given to Adam. So we should see Adam as a new, or Abraham as a new Adam, who is being fruitful with his genealogy. Exceedingly fruitful, he says. But it's not because of what Abram's doing. It is because of what God does. I will make you fruitful. I will make you into great nations and great kings will come out of you. And I will establish my covenant, you and your offspring and all generations will be an everlasting covenant. The rest of chapter 17 is going to tell us the story of circumcision and Isaac's promised birth. The story of circumcision is about the sign of the covenant. If you look down at verse 11, that the sign of the covenant will be circumcision. So a cutting off of the human flesh to show that it will not be by the human power or human flesh that this covenant will be made and kept. It will be by the work of God's wonderful hand to take open a dead womb and bring life from it. So the circumcised males will be those who are part of the covenant and those who do not have circumcision. You see at the bottom of verse 14, they will be cut off from the people. They will have broken the covenant. So this will be a big deal to establish who's in and who's out of the people of Abraham. The Isaac story is that Isaac is promised very explicitly, and we get from the rest of chapter 17, verse 15, into chapter 18, the perpetual struggles of Abraham and Sarah to try and figure out how this promise is going to happen. And so God promises and says, I will give you a son, and it will happen. And so then look at verse 17. Abram falls on his face, and he laughs. I'm 99 years old. I'm not having any kids. Are you kidding me? And look at my wife. She's 90 years old. That's verse 17 and then verse 18. God says, no, Ishmael is not going to be the son. It will be a son named Isaac. And Isaac, his name means laughter because the joke is going to be on Abraham and Sarah. 
And that's why God tells them his name will be called Isaac. So he establishes the covenant, and we see that he then promises at the very end of the uh, chapter section there, verse 21, look, I will establish my covenant with Isaac after he is born, and Sarah will have this baby sometime next year. Abram obeys God and circumcises himself at the age, ripe old age of 99. Imagine that, men. 99-year-old circumcision. Anyone want to sign up for that? And then Ishmael, when he was 13 years old, and then in chapter 18, God appears with three, what are later called angels, three men, as you see in chapter 18, verse 2. And these men come, and Abram brings them in and is hospitable to them, and they say, where is Sarah, your wife, in verse 9? And the Lord then speaks to Abram and says, Sarah will have a son this time next year. And Sarah is eavesdropping. She's listening in. And it says down in verse 11 that Abram and Sarah were both old. Have you noticed the repetition? They're old. They're advanced in years. This is not going to happen. This promise is not coming. And so she starts laughing to herself. Chapter 17, Abram fell on his face and he laughed. Now Sarah's laughing. And she says, there is no way. Look at what it says in verse 12. After I am worn out and my Lord, and my Lord is Abraham, after my husband is old, shall I still have pleasure? She is very much thinking this is not going to happen. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, now why is Sarah laughing? And notice this verse in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Their faith is faltering yet again. And so he says and reminds them, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah denies it, saying, no, I did not laugh, but he says, no, you did laugh. And then Abram is told at the end of this section that you will become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you because you have been chosen. That's verses 18 and 19. And that he is to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so this is God telling him, more. This promise is coming, and you will be great, and your family will be great. And then he hears about Sodom, Sodom being this wicked, terrible city that we heard earlier in the Lot story. And he hears cries coming up, and he's wondering, are the people of Sodom really as wicked as these cries come up? And so in verse 22, the men turn from there, these angels And they go and find out what's going on down in Sodom. And as this is happening, Abraham is asking the Lord, look at verse 23, will you really sweep away all the righteous people with all of the wicked? And he asks, suppose there's still 50 righteous men in the city of Sodom. Will you sweep them away? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put any righteous people to death. And notice the phrase at the end of verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is pleading with God. And this is a very important lesson for you to learn about prayer. He is pleading with the character of God, the justice of God. He's knowing what God is like. And he's saying, no, God, you're not a God who just innocently or or, or wipes out people who are innocent or are righteous or are good. You wouldn't do that. You are a good judge. So then he says, no, I will not wipe out that city if there are still 50 people left. And then they play this little back and forth game. And then, well, what about 40? Well, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? He says, even if there are 10 righteous people, but there are not 10 righteous people. There's only two. There's Lot and his kid or kids. There's just a small number of righteous people. Even Lot's wife seemed to not be righteous. But God rescues Lot in his grace and his mercy in chapter 19. When Lot saw these angels, he asked them to spend the night, and so they entered his house in verse 3. And then in verse 4 and following, we see that all of these men of the city of Sodom want to go and sleep with these angels. So they say, bring them out so that we may know them. That's in verse 5 of chapter 19, and that word know is the same word that's used. Adam laid down with Eve, and they yada together, and they had a baby. So that's the word here. Bring these men, these strangers out, and we would like to yada them. We'd like to know them. And it's not just we want to hang out and have a cup of coffee. They would like to do more than that. Remember, this is a wicked city. So they'd like to take these men for their own sexual pleasure. And so that's why we see this later as a reference about sexual immorality, the people of Sodom. And that's the explicit reference here in the text. 
So these men do not back down, even though Lot's trying to keep them out. Look at verse 9. They're pressing harder and harder against Lot. They're even trying to break down the door. And then the men inside the house reach out their hands. They grab Lot. They bring them in, and they struck down these wicked men with blindness. And then they talk to Lot, and they say that we're going to destroy this place, and you need to get out of here. Look at verse 14. Lot went out, and he told everybody, hey, we got to get out of here. We got to leave this place. And then they don't believe. They think that he's just joking around or something. And so they experience the judgment of God by not putting their faith and trust in his word. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, it's time to get up in verse 15. And so he got up with his wife and his two daughters. And so they left. And the Lord was being merciful, the text says in verse 16, by saving and rescuing Lot. And then in verse 17, They're told to not look back at the city. Do not stop. Do not think, oh, but if only we could just go back and get this or be back with our home. No, you are to be done. You are to turn away and never look back. And so they settle in a a city called Zoar, just outside of Sodom. And then God brings down, it says in verse 24, rains, sulfur, and fire. But Lot's wife looked back. She wanted what they left. She did not put her faith and trust in the Lord, and she became a pillar of salt in verse 26. Then Lot and his daughters get up, and they leave, and they start living in a cave. Drop your eyes down to verse 30. They're living in a cave with the two daughters. And now the two daughters are thinking, what are we going to do? We have no husband. We have nobody else. We're living in a cave with our dad. Let's get him drunk, and let's sleep with him so we can have a family. So they both take turns doing that. And then the end of chapter 19 says that those two children are called Moab, and they're called Ben-Ami, and that they are the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And when you read the rest of the Bible story, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites are bad news. And you see that whenever sin is the source of these these, uh, births, they are often leading to a whole generation of peoples that are a part of the seed of the serpent and not the seed of the woman. Our last and final chapter is chapter 20. Abraham journeys And do you believe that he did not learn his lesson? In verse 2, as he's journeying through, he stops in Gerar, and he says, hey, how about you be my sister again? Remember that game? Let's do that again. And so she goes along with it. And so Abimelech, the king of Gerar, took Sarai, because she's apparently, or Sarah at this point, she's still smoking hot in her ripe old age. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream and said, what are you doing? You're going to be a dead man because you have taken a married woman. And Abimelech is like, whoa, 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 I thought she was just the dude's sister. And he says, I am an innocent man. You cannot judge me for this. You are a good God. You would not do that. And then in verse 7, verse 6, actually, I want you to notice this phrase. This is a really good phrase for your own personal understanding of God's sovereignty, even over your own sin. Yes, I know that you have done this with integrity in your heart. I am the one, God is the one who kept King Abimelech from sinning. I did not let you touch her. Meditate on that later this week. You want to pray against ending sin in your life. Know that God can keep you from sinning. That's a good thing for us to meditate on, to realize it's all through this story, not by our strength, our might, our plans. No, God's plans is how things are accomplished. Anyway, verse 7 says that he is to return the man to Uh, return Sarah back to Abraham because he is a prophet and he will help you live and recover from your disease. So Abraham had his wife return to him. Remember that phrase back with King Pharaoh in verse 9? You see that again, Abimelech's like, hey, Abraham, what have you done? And um, he gives a pretty lame reason in my estimation. And then verse 14 Abimelech, and and this is again the same story, he gets a bunch of sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gives Abraham and Sarah his wife back. So both times he gives his wife over, and both times he gets chewed out, but he ends up with a whole bunch more possessions. This, This is just a messed up sort of story when you think of it that way. He's given thousands of silver, and then Abimelech says this, now my land is before you, you can have it, whatever you want. So Abraham gets the land And then eventually, as we'll see next week, he gets the son of promise, Isaac. All right, there's eight chapters of the story of Abraham. And I want to briefly point out three quick things. 
really, they're going to be three quick things. I know that was a lot. Three quick things that we should learn from this story. First, God gives very precious and very great promises. That's actually 2 Peter verse Chapter 1, verse 4, God grants us precious and very great promises. The God of the Bible grants amazing promises. They would not see that again and again. These promises were so amazing that they couldn't even believe them. They're laughing. They're hard to believe. Dust of the ground, stars of the sky. We can't even have kids. How is this going to happen? This is difficult for us to believe. So I ask you this morning, Do you not realize that God has also given to us, all of us who are Christians, amazing promises, precious promises? He has given you the promise of eternal life. How good is that, that your life is not wrapped up here on this earth, but there is resurrection from the dead, hope beyond the grave? He has given you the promise of forgiveness of sins. Oh, even better, He gives the promise of sin no more. He gives the promise that one day there will be all nations of the earth worshiping the throne. He gives the promise of a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That land is the whole entire earth for all of this new humanity that God has given. If you start racking up the promises in a list, you start to realize this is unbelievable, and it might even be hard for some of you to believe. Which brings us to point number two. God gives great and precious promises. That's point number one. Point number two, you are to walk by faith and not by sight. They're not supposed to be believable. They're God-sized promises. 2 Corinthians 5-7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And the reason, if we read this story, and I think we read it accurately, the reason we should walk by faith by reading the story of Abraham, is that there is not one single thing a human can do to stop the plans and promises of God. How many times did you see something come into the way that might thwart the plans of God? And do they ever get close to stopping them? Never. Famine. Nope. That didn't stop the promises of God. How about Abraham's faithfulness, faithlessness twice to give up his wife? If he gives up his wife, do you understand That kills the seed promise. Genealogy, geography, all through these eight chapters, the promises seem to be in danger. Powerful kings are at war with one another, and Abraham tries to go fight and save. What if he doesn't have victory? There goes the seed promise. There goes the land promise. He only brought a few hundred guys, and you've got all of these nations coming together, probably thousands of guys, and he wins. The story should leave you jaw-dropped. Oh, there's not one single thing. Human kings, rulers, powerful armies, famines, or even sin from human beings that can stop the plans and promises of God. That's what this story should be rising up faith in you. And then we haven't even gotten to the point that the woman is barren and they are old. And how often did they repeat that? She is old. Like, she's really old. This isn't coming. She's as good as dead in there. And God brings life from death. That's what he does. That's what the God of the Bible is like. Chapter 18, verse 14, that's another one of those underlined, Mark, put on your mirror every day. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Amen, hallelujah. You should walk by faith and not by sight because you know the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth, nothing is too difficult for him. My friends, we should be looking at the God of Abraham, and we should see that he is worthy of our trust. Trust him. Examine your life right this moment and the rest of today and ask, what are you failing to trust God in for? And if you look at this story and you look at the God of the Bible again and again, don't your, don't your anxieties and worries look stupid? The New Testament again and again points to Abraham's faith as an example for us to follow. He is a great man, even though he makes all kinds of mistakes. It's his faith, though. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us God calls him and says, hey, I want you to go to a place. And he says, where am I supposed to go? I'll tell you later, he says. Okay, he goes by faith. I'm going to make your name a great name through your descendants. and I'm going to give you land. Well, where's the land? I'll tell you later. 
Well, who's this kid going to be? Is it Ishmael? Is it, is it this guy or this guy? I'll tell you later. And he keeps walking by faith. Remember that verse in chapter 15, verse 6. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. My friends, this is the gospel. The gospel of the Bible is that God has made precious and great promises, and he is worthy of your trust. So put your faith in those promises like Abraham gospel, though. I thought the gospel was about Jesus. No, the gospel is about putting your faith in the promises of God. This is why some people sometimes ask, well, what about people before Jesus came, like Abraham? Will he be in heaven one day? What about Moses? Will he be saved by Jesus? All people, past, present, future, they will be saved by their faith in the promises of God. These people did not have the clarity about what those promises look like like you and I do. These things were shadows. They were small pictures. We, my friends, we have these promises in 3D. We have them HD. It's clear. We know what the promises of God are as they come to their fruition, which brings us to our third point. All promises, including the promise of Abraham, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Everything we read in this story has echoes and shadows and signs pointing to the day that Jesus would come. That's why Galatians 3 verse 8 says, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Yes, this is the gospel. We just went over an introduction of the gospel. You're like, where's the gospel in here? Where's Jesus in here? He is everywhere. Jesus was called to get out of his home and be a blessing to the nations of the earth. He left his father's throne, came down as a servant, and was a blessing to the nations. Jesus was born of a womb that seemed closed and impossible to have babies. He was born as a virgin. Jesus went down into Egypt after his birth, just like Abraham, just like the people of Israel in the Exodus story. Jesus is the priest king of Jerusalem. Remember when I said Melchizedek? Hold on to that for a second. Jesus himself quotes Psalm 110 and says that there will be a priest and a king in the order of Melchizedek, and he talks about himself as being that priest king. And then the book of Hebrews is going to spend a whole chapter on this one little verse that you saw about Melchizedek being a priest king. Jesus is that priest king. So it's Melchizedek. It's his leaving his home. It's, it's everything. Jesus is all over this place. In Genesis 15, do you remember that story that we went through where the animal carcasses are on the side and the blood is poured out and they're to walk through, but Abraham's sleeping? It's as if God is saying in that story, the curse will be broken, but I will take on the covenant curse myself. That's a foreshadowing of the gospel. I still remember the day that I sat down with a Jewish rabbi and I said, hey, you know why you need to believe in Jesus? And he said, no. I could have gone to Isaiah 53, I could have gone to all kinds of different prophetic scriptures, but I knew this guy pretty well, and I knew that he was rooted, his beliefs, in the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Pentateuch. And I went to Genesis 15, I said, read this story. So he read the story, and I said, why is Abraham sleeping? And why is the torch, this, this symbol of God's presence? I'm like, you're a Jew, isn't that the symbol of God's presence? He's like, yes, that's the symbol of God's presence. Why is Abraham sleeping? He should be walking behind the torch. He said, I have no idea. I said, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ would one day come and he would take on the covenant curse because his people are covenant breakers and God is a God of justice. And that's what we see later in the stories where God is a God of justice and, and we see Abraham pleading to God's justice. No, God, you're a God of justice. You, you can't squash those people inside him if there's righteous people. I know you're a God of justice. So justice must come. So how is God going to be both faithful to his promise and save and be merciful, but at the same time just. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Genesis 15 is all about. Jesus also was circumcised, but he was the one who was eventually cut off even though he obeyed the law perfectly and was cast out like all the uncircumcised Gentiles were cast out. Jesus pleads with the Father not for the righteous, but for the wicked. You remember that story in Sodom? What if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 40 righteous? What if there's 30? What if there's 10? Even if there's 10. Jesus hangs on the cross and he pleads, Father, forgive them, the wicked, the ungodly. I am not pleading for the righteous. I am pleading for the wicked. 
Jesus is all over this story. Jesus is the greater Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. He is the greatest that could ever be. And if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus says you will be even greater than Abraham himself. Jesus gives his life for people like sodomites and sulfur and fire rain down on him. My friend, do you have any good reason this morning to not trust this God? Especially when you look at the more clear HD picture of the promises coming to fulfillment with their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So give it to him, whatever it is that you're holding on to. Whatever you think that I'm going to try and do this on my own, just lay it down at his feet and trust him with it. Trust your family with it. Trust your job with it. Trust your future with it. Trust your tomorrows. Because, man, he has been faithful in all of our yesterdays. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to be people that are people of faith, that trust your promises. You are so incredibly good and faithful What a privilege we have this morning to walk through several different chapters and see time and time again how you deliver even when we are faithless, even when we mess up, even when we blow it. You should not have rescued Abraham out of the land of Egypt. What a bonehead mistake he made. And aren't we just like him? Aren't we going to be quick to forget even what we just heard today? Father, we want to confess that we are that kind of people. We are prone to wander, prone to leave you, prone to forget your promises and how good you are. And so we're asking that you will help us, that you will protect us, that you will keep us from sin like you kept King Abimelech. Keep our hands away from touching. Keep our eyes away from looking. Keep our feet away from walking and going into sin. Use the instruments of our body for righteousness. May we not just be people of faith by lip service only, but faith that leads to deeds. Faith like Abraham that gets up and goes, that obeys, that circumcises himself even at age 99. What faith we have seen this morning in Abraham, and may we have faith like that, not because of how great he is or how great we are, but because the object of our faith, the source of our faith is so sure and steady. We thank you for it and we pray our eyes would be fixed on it all day, all week, all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, if you are a Christian this morning,